right, well, good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. Get ready to head into the new year in 2016. And before Pastor Gary leaves, I just want to make sure that we can, since we're recording this, that everybody knows he did say I was tough, and we can get that on the recording there. So, <laughs> Actually, uh, being tough is what I'm going to talk to you a little bit about today. Um, because I, I thought to myself, as we head into the new year, into 2016, um, what would be some, some good marching orders or some good guidance to kind of help us as we head into the new year? And I, and I remember this time last year preaching a message to you about Nehemiah and how Nehemiah saw the state of his country and uh, the need to rebuild. Nehemiah did it. But uh, we didn't talk a lot about his character. We didn't talk about how tough he was or how he dealt with opposition. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. But... As we think about being tough, I have a, do have a question. Um, how many tough men do we have in here today? If you're tough, would you please raise your hand? Any tough men, raise your hand. Well, that's no t- there are more tough men in the first service. This is crazy. So we don't have any tough men in here. Well, I see a couple guys that I know aren't tough, for sure. Um, let's see. Okay, well, hopefully by the end of the service, we'll see some tough men raising their hand. <laughs> um, I raise my hand. I'm tough. I'm not afraid to admit it. Actually, let me share with you a story about being tough. Probably about six or seven years ago, I was pastoring down in Florida at our church down there. And and, um, a friend of mine, Matt, who lived close next door to me, used to come over all the time. And he would teach my boys karate-type moves, and he's a very athletic guy. He was built like the Incredible Hawk. I mean, this guy was like a superhero almost. And when he came over, my boys were just enamored about this amazing things he could always do. And, you know, tough guys, we have to stick together. So I'm like, well, I, he's tough, and he can hang out with me. And so he came over one day, and he had a samurai sword. And I don't know how he did this, but uh, he was able to take a samurai sword and slice through a glass bottle without breaking it. Have you ever heard such a thing? Slice right through it, just like butter. And so he was showing my boys this, and they were like, that's amazing. And so I, I went inside, and I knocked out about 50 push-ups, and I put my tight shirt on, and I walked outside with my muscles rippling. And I went outside because tough guys hang together, right? And you know what happened? He said, Terry, I know you're tough, and I'm paraphrasing. This is probably what he was thinking. Terry's tough like me, so I'm going to let Terry use the samurai sword and show his boys how he can slice through this glass bottle. So I grabbed that samurai sword, I picked it up, and I was getting ready to slice through this bottle. Then I had a bunch of muscle spasms in my chest from doing push-ups, because I don't know push-ups that often, you know. So I couldn't even move the sword, and uh, I was like, Matt, can you take this back? And so, so my boys were laughing, and they, they remember, and uh, they're really embarrassing. The reason I share that with you is because as I'm talking about toughness today, I'm not talking about physical toughness. I'm talking about spiritual toughness. And I think it's important that we understand what it means to be spiritually tough, to be strong in that capacity, because I believe it also points us in the direction of being courageous. Because as we head into 2016, my prayer is that 2016 is a year of revival for our country, that it's a year of revival for our community, for this church. And in order for it to be a year of revival, we're going to have to be tough. We're going to have to be courageous. We're going to have to be willing to step out and do those things that might, we might be uncomfortable with doing. I pray that 2016 is a year of revival, and in doing that, you're going to have to be tough. Now, I want to dig into the book of Ezekiel here, if you want to begin turning that way this morning. And I want to look at some scriptures. But before we do that, Clyde, I didn't see you raise your hand saying you were tough. And I just want to put that out. He's got family visiting. Clyde is very tough. 
Everybody thought it's tough. But, but as we get into the book of Ezekiel, and we're talking about tough men, I, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about what God is actually calling for and how we can respond as we head into 2016. So if you open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 22, we'll be looking at verses 23 through 31. And if you would, please stand out of reverence and respect to reading God's Word this morning. Ezekiel chapter 22 will be in verses 23 through 31. Ezekiel chapter 22, verses 23 through 31. Now it begins out by saying this. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of the indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets and her mist is like a roaring lion tearing the prey they have devoured people. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey to shed blood, to destroy people and to get dishonest gain. Her prophets plaster them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord had not spoken. The people of the land have used oppressions, committed robbery, and mistreated the poor and needy, and they wrongfully oppressed the stranger. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. Therefore I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath, and I have recompensed their deeds on their heads, says the Lord God. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for this place where we can come together and worship you. Father, we pray right now that your Holy Spirit is present in this place. Father, I pray that you would take me out of the equation, that you would speak through me today, Father, and let this be coming from you, Lord, and not from Terry. Lord, I pray that the things that we hear draw us closer to you, Father, that they store a fire in our stomach that just makes us want to go out and, and share the love of Christ with a world that so desperately needs it. Father, we pray for this time. We thank you for the reading of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, up to this point in chapter 22 in the book of Ezekiel, there's a lot that's been going on. The people had given themselves over to bloodshed, to, to sexual immorality, to bribery, to extortion. They're worshiping false idols. They're giving themselves over to greed and to, to lust. And they basically have just turned away from God. And in the text that we just read, we also see that even their leadership is doing the same. In particular, the prophets. The prophets have turned away from God and they begin to say that God is saying this one thing. In reality, they're making up lies to further their own agendas. The priests are doing the same thing. They're even described as roaring lions seeking to devour. These were the prophets and the priests. The people were not hearing what God's commands were, and so the people were having difficulty understanding the difference between right and wrong because nobody was teaching them, and their hearts had turned away from God. Their hearts had turned to stone. Even the princes, their governmental structure, the princes and leaders were making profits off the people, and their greed was destroying them. So this is what happens. The Lord sees all this going on in this nation. He sees all these terrible things. He sees the nation that has turned away from God. And then in verse 29, it says, 
The people of the land have used oppressions, committed robbery, and mistreated the poor and needy, and they wrongfully oppressed the stranger. God says, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Here's this nation, this, all these things going on, this, this, this turned away from God, these terrible things happening to the people. God looks over the land just to find one man that would stand for him. One man that would declare his truce, and he couldn't find one man. It was a nation that had become corrupt with its own greeds and lust. It had turned away from God. They were a nation full of pride, a nation full of sin. They were worshiping idols. God says, I'm looking for a man to stand the gap for me. A man to stand up and to do what's right. I could not find one man in this entire nation of thousands and thousands of people, God says. Not one man to stand the gap for me. An entire nation. And not one man would stand for the Lord. And this is what I want our rally cry to be today. I want us to think about that concept. And when you think about God looking over an entire nation and not finding one man to stand up for him, I want you to be appalled. I want you to be sick to your stomach that in this entire nation, God could not find one man. One man to stand the gap for him. Just one man. Not one man who would be courageous to stand amidst persecution and struggles and trials. Not one man to proclaim the truth. And I want you to think about if God is saying that today in America. Is God saying, I need one man to stand up for me? And if God is saying that to us, which I believe he is, I want you to say without hesitation, God, I will stand up for you. I will proclaim your truth. I will not let the, the persecutions or the struggles or trials of this world that's around me prevent me from declaring the name of Jesus Christ. I will stand with you, Lord, regardless of what the world might throw at me regardless of the dangers, the struggles, or the tribulations. Because I believe that God wants us to stand the gap for Him in America today. And I believe now is the time to stand up. Now is the time to be strong, to be courageous, and let the world know that there is eternal life in Jesus Christ and Him alone. There is no other way. And if there is another faith, if there is another tradition, if there is another law that we insinuate otherwise... We need to stand strong and declare that as a bold-faced lie. You see, the corruption in Israel had reached from the top to the bottom. It was a society permeated with sin. And they were embracing that sin. The religious leaders had uh, become spiritually bankrupt. The political leaders were lost in their, their own corruption. Even the people of the, the land had turned their hearts away from God. There was a pastor by the name of Danny Nance, and he said this. He said, what do I see when I look out at the land of my birth? I see a pop spirituality that is all about making people feel good without making any moral demands upon them. I see leaders who are willing to do whatever it takes to maintain their personal power, often at the expense of the people they should be serving. I see ordinary folks who've lost sight of what it means to care about each other in their efforts to get ahead in this world, who have sacrificed their families in order to have their own pleasures, who have turned their back on what is right in order to own more things they really don't need, who've forgotten what is really important in life in favor of what is fleeting. In short, while we live in a land of prosperity and power, 
It is a land that I believe is sick. A land that has lost its moorings and needs desperately to find God. Pastor Nance was referring to America today. You see, we need people to stand the gap. People to stand up for our Lord. People to make a difference and declare the name of Jesus Christ. And you know what? The devil doesn't want a passionate, believing church body. He doesn't want a church that is moving. He doesn't want you telling your co-workers, your family, or your friends about Jesus Christ. He doesn't want a lighthouse in our communities. And so you know what's going to happen? When you stand up and say, God, I will follow you. I will do what you want me to do. Guess what? The spiritual warfare is going to be very high. And it's going to be very tough. Church planting taught me this. When I was down in Florida planting our church down in Jacksonville, we had fights in the parking lots. We had break-ins. Our church got broke in twice and stole a lot of stuff out of our church. One day I was preaching just as I was now, preaching to the church. I was right in the middle of the sermon. This man comes busting in the back door, and he's got a machete in his hand. And he says, Jesus Christ is not the only way. Being beheaded is the other way. And then he runs out the back door. So you know what I did? I said, that's not true. Can somebody go see where that guy went? Call the police. Every time we had an invitation the first year, our sound system always broke on us. The technology was always messing up on us. My wife, Misty, she was getting the kids together to practice the children's play practice. And there were two adult ladies in the kitchen that were cooking a cake. And I think I've shared this with some of you guys. They were cooking a cake. And uh, they were arguing over Hispanic spice that went in the cake. And so the two adult ladies get into this fight, their mother and daughter, they start pulling each other's hair and yelling and screaming, and they're using the F word in every other sentence, and they roll out of the kitchen into the sanctuary in front of all the kids. So my wife does what a pastor's wife is supposed to do, right, Amy? She grabs the lady, she puts her in a headlock and drags her outside. <laughs> and says, don't be doing that in God's house. <laughs> That's a tough lady. I want you to know she's working with your children today. <laughs> we put them in headlocks if they get out of, out of order. We had leaky roofs, a leaky roof one time to destroy pieces of our sound system. We had a con man that uh, uh, took advantage of several elderly folks in our church and conned them out of thousands of dollars. I showed up to church one day on a big service day, and guess what I saw in the parking lot of the church? A portable carnival taking all of our parking space. Can you believe that? What made them think that they could park in the church parking lot on Sunday? So I was like, you guys got to move this stuff. And they were unloading Ferris wheels and stuff. I will tell you, I did get a deal for our church to be able to attend later on. <laughs> but you know, the spiritual warfare was really high. But there was a moment in the beginning that it was at its highest. And God taught me how to deal with it. My oldest son, TJ, who's 19 years old now, my oldest son, TJ, when he was in middle school, he was going to a, church, uh, a school there. And we were contemplating, as we do when you're finding out where God wants you to serve. God, is this where you want me? Is this where you want me to be? I, I want to know, God, have I heard your calling clearly? Because I've never had one of those moments where, like Daniel, and I prayed for it, where he wrote on the wall and said, Terry, I want you to do exactly this. I've never had that happen. As I was down in Florida and all these things going on, I'm thinking, God, is this where you want me to be? Is this what you want me to do? My son was at school that day, and I get a call from the principal. 
this principal says, your son's been involved in a fight. Some kids had uh, uh, beat him up a little bit in the hallway there. They pushed him up against the brick wall, and uh, it cut all his arm uh, up from the skin, you know, uh, the, the grating on the wall, uh, and it cut his head up, and he had blood all over him. You know, I was fired up. I was ready to go beat up some kids, you know, but you can't do that. And so um, he came to me afterwards and said, Dad, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to move back to Virginia. You know, when you're trying to figure out if this is exactly where you need to be, and your son comes to you and says, Dad, I don't want to be here, then you're like, man, this is, this is tougher than I thought. I can, handle the, I can handle my wife getting into fights with folks because she's tough. She's tougher than me. I can, I can handle the carnivals taking our parking spots and all these different things, but I can't handle my son saying, Dad, I want to go home. That, that's too much. And so that next day at church, I shared that with the church. And at the end of the church service, one of the deacons came up, and, and he got the whole church, and they surrounded myself and Misty and TJ and White. Our, our, our son, Josiah, hadn't been born yet. And they, they surrounded us, and they prayed for us. He said, we know there's a lot of spiritual warfare going on. We know the struggles that are going on. But we're here for you. We're united. We're a church that understands that the devil doesn't want us to succeed down here. So we're coming alongside you in prayer in whatever other way. And I realized as the church surrounded us and prayed, and I'm talking about a sincere pray. It wasn't just one of these ones that you ramble on that you heard on the inter- or read on the Internet somewhere. This was a sincere prayer from their hearts to pray for us. I felt encouraged and bold, and I realized God had us here for a reason, had us here for a purpose. You know, serving the Lord will be tough. Going through life's up and downs with each other in the church will be tough. We're going to be mad at each other. You're going to be mad at yourself. You might come in and be like, Charlie, I don't even want to see you today, which I told him this morning. Just kidding, Charlie. <laughs> But we don't give up on each other. We're a family. We stay together. We stay strong because as a united people under God's banner, we can accomplish anything in the name of the Lord. And that's how you overcome spiritual warfare. Now, you're going to be mentally and you're going to be physically exhausted. When I asked who, had, who was tough, I was actually looking to recruit children's helpers to help me back there because you've got to be tough. So you didn't raise your hand, but I know who's tough in this room. I'll be kidding with you afterwards. <laughs> But people are going to make you mad. You're going to be mad at yourself. But don't quit. And remember who it is you're working for. You're working for an almighty God. Don't give up. But now think about this. Where do we find these men that are tough, these men that stand the gap, these men who are willing to move forward amidst persecution and struggles and trials? I believe if we look around this room today, you'll see these men. You'll see these men that are willing to stand the gap. Hard-working, everyday, average men trying to do the right thing, trying to make a living, trying to raise their families the best way they can under the banner of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those are men that are willing to stand the gap. These are the men that Jesus chose to build his church on. Think about the first four men he called into ministry when he walked along the Sea of Galilee. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. They were fishermen, weren't they? Blue-collar, hard-working men out there working with their hands. I can imagine they probably had leathery skin. And these guys aren't guys that if you said, hey, can you come up and, and help me pick some roses on the path, they'd probably laugh at you and beat you up. That's what I would do. <laughs> these are tough, working, tough, hard-working men. These are the men that Jesus said, hey, I want you to come alongside me as we begin this church. And they dropped everything and they went. 
Their job was tough. It was a dangerous job, not for the weak. But what I find interesting is that Jesus Christ did not reach out to the religious establishment to begin his church. He did not go and look for the scholarly, educated Pharisees or the Sadducees to build his church on. He went to the everyday average man, the blue-collar worker, and said, come along with me. Listen to this. A, A Jewish historian of the day named Josephus described these men this way. He said, they were ever fond of innovation and by nature disposed to change and delighted in sedition. In other words, they were rebels. They were ever ready to follow their leader and to begin an insurrection. They were quick in temper and given to quarreling, and they were very chivalrous in men. The Talmud, which talks about Jewish history and ethics and all that, it said this of these men. It said they were more anxious for honor than for gain, quick-tempered, impulsive, emotional, easily aroused by an appeal to adventure, but loyal to the end. These were tough hard-working men. These were rebels. These were men that would not conform if they didn't believe in a certain cause. And Jesus chose these tough men, so the question we have to ask is why? Why did he choose these men to begin his church on? And I believe it's because it's exactly what we read in the book of Ezekiel, that he wanted men to stand the gap. Men who would say, you know what? What you are doing is wrong, and not be afraid to say it. Men who would not embrace the evils of the world. Men who would love Jesus Christ and His church and do everything they could to raise their family that way. Men who would draw a line in the sand and say, enough is enough, if need be. These weren't timid men. These were tough, hard-working men. Now, they had their ups and downs. We see that all throughout Scripture. But particularly as we see after Jesus ascended, we see these men rallying to a cause and experience persecution and struggles and tribulations that for some of us we could never, ever imagine. But they stayed the course. They were tough, strong men. But think about it. Jesus talked to the religious leaders of the day on multiple occasions. He was in and out of their temples, yet he did not ask them to come with them. I mean, they were teachers of the law, right? It wouldn't make sense to have them alongside you with that kind of knowledge. In addition... In the Jewish culture of the day, a rabbi, the way they chose their disciples is they would look for those that are doing the best in their schooling and the education. They would choose the best of the best to be their disciples. If you did not make the rabbi list, then you end up becoming a fisherman or a blue-collar worker in that day. But those were the men that Jesus Christ chose to begin the work with. Men who would stand the gap, who would stand tough, who would stand up amidst struggles and trials and persecution. He wasn't standing outside the seminary waiting for the next graduating class. He chose these two tough men to begin his work. And if you're thinking sometimes, you know, God, I I can't serve you. I, I don't have the abilities or the skills. I hope this serves as an encouragement to you and a reminder that God does not always call the equipped, but he does equip the called. Now, somewhere over the years, and I... And I struggled a little bit last night as I was preparing this message how to, to, to say this. But somewhere over the years, I think, I think in America, somewhere over the years, we've, we've taken the toughness out of the ministry. And, and I believe that we've created a, a Christian culture of wimps. Now, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of strong, wonderful Christians out there serving the Lord, serving hard. But there are also a lot of wimps out there. 
And when I say wimps, I mean those that uh, are bold only when it's convenient. When I say wimps, I mean those that serve only when it's convenient, that study God's Word only when it's convenient, and are absolutely terrified to be in the midst of a righteous fight. They'll do everything they can to run away from a good fight, a righteous fight. I'm going to make that clear, a righteous fight. You know, when our country was formed, there was a group of pastors. They, they led the way in politics. They led the way on the battlefield. They were called the Black Robe Regiment. And they were called that because the pastors back then in the, in the revolutionary times of our country wore these black robes when they preached. And what they would do is they would preach from the pulpit. They would preach the truth of God's holy word. And if there was a leader or somebody out there that wasn't doing their jobs, they told the church that so-and-so is not doing their job. And then if they had to go to battle, they picked up their rifle, they walked out on the battlefield, and they led the charge. These were the pastors that were intimately involved in the forming of our country during the Revolutionary War. So I asked this question, where is that church today? Where are those pastors today, those leaders today? Where are the men who will stand the gap in the face of opposition, judgment, and persecution? Where are the men who will declare the name of Jesus Christ no matter where they are? Where are the men that will, for all the world to see, will embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and declare political correctness as what it so often is, a correct, clever way or cover of telling a lie? You know, this message today for me has a very personal meaning because I, I often go to pastor meetings, particularly when I was pastoring full-time in Florida, and I'd see, go to these meetings sometimes with 50 to 100 plus pastors, and I'd talk to them, and, and some of them were just so over-the-top uh, magoo, if that's even a word. Just so, so gentle to the point where you seem like there was not a tough bone in their body. And I say that not as a slight to being gentle, but I say that they appeared to not even want to ever get dirty. They didn't want to go into a tough neighborhood. They were afraid of causing waves. I, even once on a mission trip, I had a missionary come up to me as, I was getting, as he was getting ready to preach the gospel to a group of gang members. He came up to me and said, Pastor Terry, would you mind preaching? Because I, I don't, I'm afraid of their response. And, and my response, man, toughen up. Declare the name of Jesus Christ no matter who's there. Don't be afraid because everybody needs to hear the name of Jesus Christ. And you know, when I preached to those gang members, they were all kind of intimidating. But the leader of the gang prayed to receive Jesus Christ and, and others followed. This is personal for me because there's another side to me. Many of you might not know since you only see me on Sunday mornings. You know, after, after 23 years in law enforcement, I've been in fights. People shot at me. They tried to stab me. And you know what? Man, I loved it. It's a lot of fun. As long as you don't get hurt, you know. The very first sermon illustration I ever shared with this church over 13 years ago was this. Of a, of a, of a patrol incident when I was serving as a police officer down in Mississippi. There was a, a place called Club Divine. And, and a man that was selling crack cocaine, his name was Six Pack. Does anybody remember the story? I think just a couple. I know my son does. <laughs> Six Pack was the drug dealer for this entire area called Turnkey in Gulfport, Mississippi. 
I had arrested him for simple possession of other narcotics, but I can never catch him selling crack cocaine. Well, one day he's at the club called Club Divine, and I parked my patrol car around the corner, and I walked up just to see what was going on. And I saw him actually making a drug deal. So I said, go for it, 166, signal 30, which means we have narcotics transaction in progress. Send me a backup unit. And I was a rookie officer at the time, been a police officer maybe six months, and I go running after six-pack. Well, six-pack drops the cocaine down, runs into the club, and as I chase him into the club, somebody hits me with a chair as soon as I walked in. And I was like, this is great. Not really. Afterwards, I was thinking how cool to be able to tell that story. But I ran through there. He hit me with a chair. Then um, we got up, chased him to the kitchen. He went to the kitchen. He slid on the grease. I slid on the grease right behind him. We both went sliding out the back door, and it was just like the movies. You know, you, you think that stuff doesn't happen. It happens sometimes. And so we slid out the back door, and he was in a chain-link fenced area. And he turned around, and he said, I'm not going to jail. Now, I'm a rookie police officer at the time, and you know you have a badge, and so it gives you superpowers and super strength. So you can do anything, right? Absolutely right. No, I'm just kidding. I see six-pack, and I say, six-pack, you're going to jail. He says, no, I'm not. I said, yes, you are. He says, no, I'm not. I said, yes, you are. And we go back and forth like that a couple times. And then finally, I run after him, and I tackle him just like this, and we fall on the ground. I handcuff him, stand him up, and that didn't happen at all. Actually, when I ran in the six-pack, I bounced off him like I was hitting a brick wall. <laughs> because six-pack was 6'4". Six, he was about 350 pounds. He didn't have a six-pack. Was, that was just a nickname. I don't know why I gave it to him. But a very, very heavy guy, but solid. And so he and I began to wrestle around. He tried to get my gun. And, and as we wrestled around, he finally got face down on the ground. And I was trying to get his hands behind him. But his hands, he could, I needed two handcuffs to actually be able to cuff his hands behind him. And so I was struggling there. So I pull out my pepper spray. And I say, quit resisting, quit resisting. And as I spray him, I do what they teach you in the academy. And I sprayed myself as well, you know, because they teach you that. And uh, now I can't see. He can't see. And he stands up. He does a push-up with me on his back. He stands up. And I'm holding on to the back. And my feet are dangling there. Quit resisting, quit resisting, I keep telling him. And he slams me into the back of this old-style pickup truck that was in the back there. And I grabbed a mirror that was on the side. And I just held on and held on as best I could. My saving grace was that he was very overweight and he got exhausted quick and he fell down onto his knees and just pretty much gave up. And I handcuffed him and I stood there like I just caught a big bass. Like catch fishing, you know. <laughs> I share that with you because when I see the lights, man, I want to go. I want to be there to, to stop the bad guys. I want to be there to help. I love the dirt. Man, I love the mud. Billy and I, we've talked about this before. I, I love cooking a steak out over the fire and just eating it just with a fork, with no plate. And if it lands and gets some dirt on it, that's okay. just adds flavor, you know? Down in Florida, I love fishing next to alligators because you're afraid that one's going to come out of, the, out of the water there. And uh, poor little Wyatt with me fishing one day, a, a log came floating, floating around the corner. He goes, no, no. I said, buddy, it's just a log. <laughs> I like a challenge. When things get tough... That lets me know that we are headed in the right direction. You know, when I shake your hand, I told this to the first service, shake your hand like you mean it, squeeze that thing. They squeezed my hand, everybody in second service trying to break my fingers to prove a point. And so, but yeah, be, be tough, be certain, be confident. And I share this with you, I share these things with you because the reason I came back to Beaverton Baptist Church is because when I look around this room, I see tough men, tough women, 
willing to stand up to do what's right, to roll up their sleeves and get dirty if need be, willing to go out and stand up for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, no matter how hard it gets. You can't be afraid to get dirty because it's going to happen when you're involved in the ministry in many ways. When I look around the room, I see builders. I see electricians. I see carpenters. I see police officers, teachers, managers, and leaders. I see hunters. You've got to say that, otherwise you'll get around a church if you don't say there's hunters in here. <laughs> We're hunters in Beaver Dam. <laughs> we need tough men to stand the gap. Tough men to draw the line of sand. And what happens when you're a tough man and you say, okay, God, I'm going to answer your call. I'm going to stand the gap for you. I know what the mission is. I need to be part of the solution in my family. I need to be part of the solution in my community, in my state, in my country. And the solution is Jesus Christ. I know what the mission is. But how do I deal with opposition? How do I deal with when things get hard? Now, this time last year, I preached a sermon to you out of the book of Nehemiah that basically said this, that we are a country that is in need of a revival. We need to get up. We need to do like Nehemiah did. We need to be part of the solution. Over this last year, we started the Salt Light Ministry to provide some actionable items in ways that we can be part of the solution. But we've never talked about how you deal with opposition. And it's going to come. I'm 100% positive it will come. Nehemiah dealt with the opposition. And I want to dig into that a little bit. If you want to turn to Nehemiah chapter 4 with me. Nehemiah had been called to rebuild his country. He prayed for four months, God, please send somebody. And God's response was, okay, Nehemiah, I'm going to send somebody. And guess who I'm sending? I'm sending you. So Nehemiah goes, he prays, he goes, he plans, he prepares. He gathers the people together. They become inspired that God is alongside them as they're rebuilding the, the nation of Jerusalem. They were rebuilding their midst of building walls and gates and city buildings. And then the opposition really ramps up. And look how Nehemiah deals with that. In Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, it says this. But it so happened when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And so Nehemiah prayed. He said, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn them from their reproach on their own heads and give them as a plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity, and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now it happened when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashdites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored, and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry, and all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Now think about this. They're rebuilding their nation. They've seen that their nation was crumbled. It was in ruin. And the more further they get along, the more and more the opposition is there. 
There's even a point in our text where you see that Nehemiah's builders, they're having a shovel in one hand and a sword in the other as they try to be about this work. But here's what happens. They're doing what God wants them to do. And Sanballat begins to lead the opposition. Now, he was an official of the Persian Empire. He felt that what Nehemiah was doing would directly minimize his power and authority. In the text, it describes him as furious and indignant, which in the Hebrew context actually means burning with rage. This guy was fired up. He was upset that Nehemiah would dare to gather the people together to try and restore this nation. And so the first thing he does, which is very interesting, the first thing he does is he begins to mock them, to laugh at them, to judge them, to call them feeble. Look at those feeble Jews. Look what they're trying to do. They're not going to accomplish this. This is crazy. He begins to mock them and judge them. These Jews are being laughed at. They're being judged because they chose to follow God's plan. And I thought to myself, does this sound somewhat familiar today? You know, uh, you watch the national media sometime and you, you see that, that they love to mock often our Christian values or describe us as some sort of crazy radical folks because of the things that we believe in God's holy word. But the reason that they do this, the reason they mock and laugh at our Christian values sometimes is because the world cannot understand true faith. It cannot understand true love. The world cannot comprehend acts of kindness that don't have a selfish agenda behind them. Remember, God said, my ways are not your ways. So the world will not understand the moving of God. And when God is moving the people to restore this nation, the people that are opposed to it are not going to understand what God is doing. So they're going to mock. They're going to laugh. But how do we respond? When we say, God, I'm ready to stay in the gap for you. And then we begin to be laughed at. We begin to be mocked or to judge. How do we respond? Are we tough enough to stand up amidst that beginning level of opposition? To say, I don't care what you think about me. I'm going to stand up for what is right. I'm going to declare the truth of Jesus Christ, regardless of how much you judge me or laugh at me or mock me. In the midst of that, do we even more proudly declare the name of Jesus Christ, regardless of what anybody thinks of us? Nehemiah is here. He's being laughed at. He's being mocked. He's being ridiculed. But he does not stop. He continues on with the work that God has called him to do. Then in verse 3, it says this. It says, Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes on up it, he will break down their stone wall. So now you've got Sanballat mocking him and laughing and making fun of the God's chosen people and the, what they're doing to restore the nation. And now... Tobiah comes along, and he starts to mock as well. He says, you know, their wall is so rickety. If a little fox goes up, one of that thing's going to crumble down. Don't worry, they can't accomplish anything. He's mocking them. He's laughing at them. The opposition is now increasing even more. Now, Nehemiah starts to get frustrated here a little bit, and he begins to pray. And his prayer is a prayer of justice. But listen to this, because you've got to really look at this so you don't miss it. His prayer is one that he delivers not because he is personally offended. He's not personally offended at Sanballat's mocking. He's upset because he was mocking God. And that's why he was upset. Because what God had called the people to do was from God. 
And in their mocking, they were mocking God. Now think about that for a moment. I know we get upset about all kinds of things. The worst time to call me on the phone is when I'm stuck in traffic listening to conservative talk radio because I'm getting all fired up and I'm upset about everything. We get upset about things. Jesus shows us how to deal with that, to be forgiving, to be compassionate, to be kind. But let me tell you this. We need to get upset. We need to get fired up when others are mocking or dishonoring God. Nehemiah did. Jesus did when he went in the temples and saw all the money changers. And he said, you've turned this place into a den of thieves. And he pushed the tables over. It was a righteous anger. You see, when people mock God, when they dishonor God, it's okay to get upset. It's okay to get fired up because it's a righteous anger. Jesus Christ did it. We see Nehemiah doing it. When the world is in opposition to what God is doing, we should be upset about that. When legislators pass laws that are in opposition to what God is wanting us to do in our lives, then we need to get fired up. We need to vote them out of office. When the media and the movies begin to dishonor or mark God, we need to turn away from those things and put them out of business. When a culture of political correctness declares that there are many ways to heaven and that all religions are correct, you just pick whatever one you want, we need to get fired up and we need to teach against it and declare the truth of Jesus Christ. You see, regardless of if you're being mocked at, you're being laughed at, you're being judged, you need to stand up, be tough, and do what's right. Are we tough yet? Raise your hands if you're tough. See, we got some tough people filtering in. We got some children's volunteers coming in. That's good news. So, Nehemiah was being mocked at. He was being ridiculed. But you know what? He didn't stop. He continued moving on. And it says this in verse 6. It says, So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. They did not let this mocking, this laughter, this opposition stop them from what they're doing. God puts it in his hands, and they continue to do what God had called them to do. But look at the end of verse 6. It says the people had a mind to work. They were united. They were a team. And it's here where their passion was developing because they were doing God's work together. Their new country needed help, and they knew this. They knew that they all needed to be about God's business. God was not just using Nehemiah alone. He wasn't just using the priest alone. He was using all the people in this nation coming together, united to restore this nation. That was his plan of how to restore the nation of Jerusalem. Everyone coming together to be about God's business. So there you have it. The solution of how we get involved in the restoration of our nation today. Not just the political leaders, not just the pastors, not even legislative overhaul will restore our nation. It'll be all God's people coming together with a very clear purpose of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with a nation that so desperately needs it. So they build this wall. They're working together as a team. They're experiencing opposition, laughter, mocking, those kinds of things. Oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. But then the opposition does what? When you're doing God's work, do you think the opposition builds a little bit and then stops? No. Sometimes it gets harder and it increases. And so look what happens in verse 7 and 8. It says, Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites, so you've got now all these people coming together, 
heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. You see, the opposition has increased now past just mocking and laughter. Now there is a threat of physical harm. If you rebuild this nation, we are going to kill you, is what they're saying. We're going to attack you. Sometimes things get worse before they get better. Sometimes you might be thinking, okay, God, I've prayed. It's supposed to get easier now, right? No. What we see here is even after prayer, the opposition continues to increase. Things continue to get harder. Now they're experiencing the threat of physical bodily harm. And I thought to myself, in our dealing with opposition, when God has called us to do something, maybe we can deal with the laughter. Maybe we can deal with the mocking and the judgments. But if somebody threatens your life, are we going to continue on? Are we going to say, okay, God, I'm going to be here no matter what? You want to hear a very hard question? A very hard question. I just got back from New York a couple of weeks ago, um, dealing with the NYPD there on some things. And we talked about the state of terrorism in our country. One of the cases was, uh, and I don't know if you saw it on the news, it was of the shootings that occurred there, uh, happened overseas, and, and actually some here as well, where there were folks asking the people they were shooting if they were Christians or not. Remember, anybody remember seeing that on the news? If they declared that they were a Christian, they shot them. If they declared that they were of another faith, a Muslim faith, they did not shoot them. They were here, we're reading Nehemiah. If you do God's work, we're going to kill you, is what they're saying. How do you answer that question? You just saw somebody get shot. How do you answer? That's a tough question. A lady at work asked me at the sheriff's office, she said, what do I tell my kids if we had an active shooter situation at school? What should I tell them to say? That's a tough question. They're experiencing this right now in the book of Nehemiah. They're experiencing this right now as they're rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. Their response is they continue to move forward. They continue to be about God's business. The opposition had increased. They didn't stop. The opposition was no longer mockery or laughter or judgment. It was physical harm, possibly death. How many of us would have quit by now? How many of us would have said, this is too much, enough is enough? Let somebody else finish restoring this nation. Let somebody else finish building these walls. I can't do this anymore. I'm going to quit. How many of us would have stopped when we become in physical danger? But they didn't. They worked very hard. And then we see in verse 10 that they worked so hard that they were physically and mentally exhausted. So not only did they respond with saying, we're going to continue moving forward, but they responded and they worked so hard that physically and mentally they were wiped out. Now these folks that were in opposition see how hard they're working. They see that they're physically and mentally exhausted. And so they begin to think, if they're tired and exhausted, guess what? This is a good time to attack. So in verse 11 it says this. It says, And our adversary said... They will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause their work to cease. They are so tired, so exhausted, they're not even going to see us come in and we're going to destroy them. We're going to kill them. That was their goal. That was their objective. To literally restore this nation could have meant death. It's getting harder here. 
Obedience to God is getting harder. It's getting much more difficult, yet the people do not give up. They do not give up on God. They do not give up on restoring their nation. And we see in the remainder of chapter 4 that Nehemiah learns of this plot, and so he positions people around the city in preparation for an attack, and he tells the people this. He says, Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord, because the Lord is great and the Lord is awesome. That is where they found their strength to be strong amidst these struggles and trials and persecutions. Nehemiah was no wimpy man. He was not a man that fled at the sign of danger, at the very first sign of danger. He stood there. He stood his place. He would not be moved and under his leadership and inspired by God, the people did as well. They would not let the world, not even the possibility of death, prevent them all from standing the gap. And so the question here is, as we move forward in 2016... Tough men, tough women, ready to stand forward, ready to move forward in what God is calling us to do. How do we deal with opposition? They found their strength in the Lord. They found their strength in the presence of God, number one. They prayed, and they did it as a united body. Coming together with one mind and one purpose to be about the business of God. That's how they dealt with opposition. And they did it very courageously. How could they do this? How could the Jews in Jerusalem rebuild in the face of potential death? How can we change the nation today? How can we make an impact in our world today? It's because we know where our strength comes from. Because we are the children of the one true and living God. Because the God that created the heavens, the God that created the oceans, the earth, that created all creation into existence, He knows our name. He knows every hair on our head, and He truly loves us. He truly loves us. You know what? There's nothing too hard for God. And how do I know that? Because Scripture tells us that. One of my favorite Scriptures in the Bible is when Sarah and Abraham are told by God that Sarah's going to have a child. And Sarah says, that's an impossibility. I'm 90 years old. Abraham's 100. That's too hard for you, God. And so you know what God says? He says, Sarah... Is your God too small? He says, Sarah, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Answer is no. There's nothing too hard for God. Abraham and Sarah were reminded that the God who spoke them into existence is the omnipotent God. He is an all-powerful God. He takes those who are dead and he makes them alive again. He takes the sick and he heals them. He takes broken relationships and he restores them. He can even restore a nation. We've seen him do that over and over again. And when you look at history, and you see how God has restored nations, we also see times of great struggle and great sacrifice. And it's during these times that God is calling out to you, and he's saying, I need men to stand the gap. I need men who will resist opposition who will work as a team, who know the mission and know where their strength comes from, and will fight, will fight the righteous fight, will fight for what's right, regardless of how hard it gets. He needs men who will fight to keep our country a Christian nation, who will be proud of their Christian heritage. And when the leaders of our country, they tell us that we are no longer a Christian nation, we need to stare right back at them in the face and say, you're absolutely wrong. Then we need to march out into the neighborhoods and tell everybody about Jesus Christ so we can prove them wrong. 
See, God can restore our nation, but not too far gone. Regardless of what you see on television or regardless of what we're saying or what people say, God can restore our nation. Now, let me share this final thought with you. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote letters to the church in Galatia to to guide them in their struggles as a new church. But there's one thing that the Galatians were known for, and that was their fierceness in battle. The Galatians lived in an area that was considered the worst defensible area in the uh, region. And people didn't understand how so often, after battle, after battle, after battle, they would continue to win these battles. They didn't have the, the training. They didn't have the great geographic location. So they were dumbfounded. But the secret, I believe, is in their motivation. You see, when the Galatians went out onto the battlefield, they were also required to bring their wives and their children with them. So the wives and the children stood right behind them on the battlefield, on the front lines, as they were fighting these other countries. If they lost, their families were either put to death or they were sold into slavery. If they won, their families lived and they kept everything that they loved. I believe the reason they won the battle is this, because you fight differently for something you love. You know, it's our love for Jesus Christ that makes us fierce in battle. And that makes the world take notice. And when the world takes notice, as Christian believers, you know what we do? We point the world to Jesus Christ and say, here's why we can be the way we can. Here's why we can face adversity. Here's why we can face struggles and trials and tribulations and not give up. Because our strength comes from a God who is the creator of the universe. That's why we can be fierce in battle. And we love Jesus Christ so much that our love for him gives us that ferocity, gives us that fierceness in battle that helps us to win battle after battle after battle with the knowledge that when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, the victory had already been won. You see, in the book of Ezekiel, God looked upon his chosen people, the nation. He said, I cannot find one man to stay in the gap for him. We cannot let our country repeat the mistakes of history. And I believe today, as he looks down upon us today, he's desiring for us to stay in the gap as well, to declare his name to a world that so desperately needs it. And today, I have called out the tough men. Today, I have asked our church to stand up for our country and to do what is right. You've been asked to be part of a righteous fight in the midst of ongoing spiritual warfare, and you've been shown where we can find our strength in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we need to do it together. We need to do it united. We need to do it as a family and body of believers because if we're not together in this thing, then we'll be divided, and that's where the difficulties happen. I pray each of you are ready to answer the call. When God looks down upon us today and says, I need men to stand the gap for me. But before you can answer that call, you have to be right with him. Knowing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. That he was buried. That he rose three days later and he's living today. And that he is the only way to eternal life. Regardless of what the world might want to say, Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal life. There's no other way to heaven but through him.